0: So, we're going to go on with Acts, Acts chapter 13. So let's, start, let's just start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and for your word that reveals him to us. And we pray, Father, that you will strengthen each of us, that you will bless each of us, that we might meet him again, as it were, for the first time, and that we might devote ourselves to following him and to being his men and his women in this world. So please, speak and teach to each of us, Father. In his name. Amen. Amen. So, Acts chapter 13. Well, this is the uh, first missionary journey. Now, there was an Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. And I said yesterday that Antioch is like it's like sin city. It was like full of idol worshipping. It was full of like prostitutes on every street corner. It was a terrible place. And yet that's actually where the early church, really got going. Because they got persecuted in Jerusalem, and they ran away, and they came to Antioch. And because when you know the gospel, and when you're sure that you're going to live eternally, you, you, can't, you can't keep it to yourself, you talk to other people. So these guys who were Jews were telling Gentiles. And so the first sort of Gentile, multi-ethnic church got going in this unlikely place called Antioch and I said that Antioch would be a bit like West Croydon. people were sitting around mm-hmm. drinking whiskey yeah. smoking splits and um, you know, whatever so, <clears throat> in those very unlikely places, the gospel got going, so it says there were these prophets and teachers there Barnabas and Simeon that was Simon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaean the foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, who later became Paul Well, what a funny mixture of people! This guy, who is the half brother of Herod, so a very big guy um, in in the uh, in the church, a very big guy. Sorry, a very big guy in society, and he's there in the church, and also Saul, who had persecuted Christians but have now um, become a Christian, and then. Simon or Simeon who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene. Who are these people? You might remember when Jesus is carrying the cross. We're told that he couldn't carry it any further. And he collapsed. And they grabbed hold of a bloke called Simon from Cyrene. And laid on him the cross. And this guy carried it to the end. And I suggest that this Simon who was called Niger was the same guy. Simon was from Cyrene, and look here, Simon is called Niger, is next to Lucius from Cyrene. Now Cyrene was in North Africa, and he was called Niger, I guess, because he was a black guy. That word didn't have the negative connotation that it does today. So, a multi-ethnic church. That guy who was just coming out of the countryside, it was maybe just a a migrant worker or a random nobody who didn't know what was going on this fellow comes in out of the countryside and oh the the Romans grab him and say carry this fellow's cross and he became a Christian because of that and now he is a senior uh, member of this amazing multi-ethnic church in Antioch and we're all a bit like Simon and Cyrene really that we were going someplace else in life and then we were kind of grabbed. And then we were put to carry the cross of, of Jesus. And you see how the Lord has got this plan for us. Quite out of the blue, out of left field. He comes into our lives. So, as they ministered to the Lord, served the Lord, that's what to minister means, and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work unto which I have called them. Now, elsewhere in Galatians, Paul says... God set me apart from my mother's womb but now the Holy Spirit says set me apart Saul or Paul to do some work for me so you see we were set apart right from the beginning in God's plan and purpose and to be set apart actually that's what saint means or holy means to be set apart doesn't mean that we are better than the world in which we live but it means that we have been set apart And all of us here have, I believe, felt from our childhood that I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. doesn't mean that I'm better than this world, but I am a bit different. Something's different. I am a bit separate. I'm set apart. And here's the answer to that feeling that you have. I had that feeling from a little boy that I was sort of at school or whatever and in with other kids and so forth, but... There was something that I felt I was set apart. I was different. I didn't know what it was and why that was. And then when you encounter God's call in your life, it all makes sense. That yes, we have been set apart right from the beginning. But you've still got to respond to that call. So when you hear the call of the gospel to connect with Jesus, to connect with God, yeah, that's the answer that you've been set apart from. from. From your mother's womb, right through. That was the purpose. It doesn't mean you're better than the world, but it means that God has got a number on you have got a purpose with you. And so when you baptize us, some people hope to be baptized this afternoon at our place, God willing, you see, you're saying yes to the call. You're saying yes, I agree. I'm going to connect with Jesus, not because I am better than anybody else, but I have been set apart, and I get that. So When they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. You see how the Bible sort of hangs together, because this is uh, Barnabas and Saul, you see, who are being sent on the first missionary journey. And Barnabas was from Cyprus. So, no surprises there that he is the guy that is sent. And actually we're told that, we read a few weeks ago, we looked at it, that Barnabas owned land on Cyprus. When he became a Christian he sold it and gave the money to the poor. Because he was a Jew and he was a Levite. And the Levites, the priestly people, were not allowed under the law of Moses to own land. So Cyprus is this island just off the coast of Israel and he thinks, oh I can be smart, I can... um, I can just, uh, yeah, I can still own land, but ha, I won't own it in Israel. Now, you can't, you can't wheedle round God. You, you can't do that. You, you, you need to totally surrender, not, not try and be clever clogs. And Barnabas is a great example of that. So, he'd sold his land on Cyprus. And now he's going back there with Saul to preach the gospel. So, when they were at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And they'd gone through the whole island to Paphos. They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of understanding. The same summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, opposed him, trying to turn the governor away from the faith. And we're going to read that this this great governor actually gets converted. So, let's just stop there. They go off to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And they land on this island of Cyprus. And they don't get anywhere. Until they get to the very end of the island and they have this meeting with the governor of the island. Who actually gets converted. So... Sometimes things don't go as you imagine. I guess they were imagining that all the Gentiles were going to believe and all that. It doesn't happen. No one was interested until the very end. And you get these tests from God at times. And at the time you think, oh God, why are you doing that to me? Oh, you know, why, why this, why that? But you see, it's all got purpose and meaning in God's bigger picture. The other thing is that as we're going to keep on reading in Acts you keep reading that uh, Paul goes to a a town and the first thing he does is to go into the synagogue of the Jews and start arguing with the Jews very often they get cranky with him they persecute him, kick him out and all that but you know Jesus had said that Peter was to be the apostle to the Jews he was to go and preach to the Jews and Paul was to preach to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. But as you read all these missionary journals, it's the same old same. Old. Paul goes straight to the synagogue of the Jews, starts arguing with the Jews, telling them, oh, Jesus is Messiah, you crucified Jesus, rah, rah. And I don't think he quite did the right thing. And he made life a lot more difficult for himself than it needed to be. Of course, Paul had been a rabbi. He spoke Hebrew, he, he had studied the Old Testament, probably memorized it all, etc. And he probably thought, well, I'm cut out to preach to the Jews, because I should go and preach in the synagogues, because I am a rabbi, blah, blah. Whereas Peter was probably illiterate, he was a fisherman, and when he stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost, the Jews mocked him and said, this guy is illiterate. He is a he can't even speak with the proper grammar in his own language. This guy has clearly never even been to school. That's right, he'd never been to school, I guess. He was a fisherman, not a rocket scientist, right? And so, humanly speaking, you would have thought that the best guy to go and preach to the Jews would have been Paul. And the guy who would have been better to go and speak to Gentiles would have been Peter, who came from Galilee, but was sort of half-Gentile anyway, as Paul had grown up at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Well, you see, God always uses people who are not humanly qualified. That's the point. He uses people that are not the man or woman for the job, because he doesn't want any glory given to man. Because he uses the most dumb, inadequate people. And Paul was sort of not quite getting it. By the way, that when he goes to preach to the Gentiles, that is to the non Jews, he, he doesn't really. He goes straight to the synagogue of the Jews, start saying, Ooh, you, you crucified Jesus, get on your knees and repent. No, that's just gonna create just gonna create a load of aggro and a load of conflict and a load of problems, and you're not actually gonna bring people to Jesus Christ by doing that. So I'm not saying Paul was a bad guy, he was a great guy, but we all no no one's perfect apart from the Lord Jesus. And so I think you can see there how it sort of goes with a lot of us. That it's not that we sinned in a lot of things, but we sure made life far more difficult for ourselves than it needed to have been. If we had gone God's way, life would have just gone more naturally. Now, the Holy Spirit said, set me apart. Barnabas and Paul for the the work I've got for them. And I said that, Paul later says, God set me apart from my mother's womb to do this job. And he says in Ephesians 4 that we each have good works that God planned for us to do from the foundation of the world. Now that is the answer to man's search for meaning. That actually there were good works set up for me to do from the foundation of the world. A man is never better than when he's actually going God's way and doing God's work. They think, oh, well, what, what am I set up to do? You look at Jonathan Light, a guy who can play the guitar, sing and all that, you think, oh, he's, he's, God planned all that out. But what about me? I can't play guitar, I can't sing for Tuffy. Um, what about me? And the thing is, we all have got something that we can do. Well, not that we can do, but that was set up for us to do. It may be looking after an autistic child. It may be bringing one person to Jesus Christ. That was your job. And whatever it, whatever it was, it could be making coffee. It could be all sorts of things. That that was set up for us to do. And it, once you you know pray to God, is it something to ask God? Show me what are those good works that you wanted me to do from the foundation of the world. Show me. Show me what you want from me what's your hope for me what's your expectation and here I am I'm not much good but I'll do it yeah? and uh, that then you know, life then has meaning and the world is full of people rich people poor people fat people thin people handsome people not so handsome people and they're all lost they're all chasing the tails because they haven't got the idea of what God wants them to do man's search for meaning I keep saying this. Yeah, that is the title of a book. That's the title of a book. This bio-concentration camp survivor, a Jew in the Holocaust, who went through incredible things. You know, like uh, machine gunned 100 men, and all the bodies happened to fall on him, and he was the one who survived. Um, and then another thing, where you, you know, like everyone was put in the in the in the gas, and well, they all died. But well, he. Managed to hold his breath and got out the other side. And he's looking back after his experiences. So what? I, I survived. I'm an incredible survivor. You know, thousands to one the chances that I should be here. But I am here. And why? Darkness, black, night. What, what is my meaning? You know? And that's a very powerful observation from somebody who survived thousands of chances to One. And he survived, and then he comes out the other side and says, "And what is, what's man's meaning anyway? What's the meaning of being alive anyway? And without Jesus Christ, yeah, absolutely. So what? What's the point? There isn't a lot of point. Um, I talk to folks who are in the grip of drug addiction and the grip of this, that, and the other, and uh, you know they sort of but hey, well, what's the point? Yeah.' And I, <laughs> I don't have a particularly good answer to that apart from Jesus Christ. There is another way to live. And that other way to live is is doing God's work. Not just, you know, looking at life like it's a, a day of the races. You know? But actually doing God's work and, and, and achieving something for Him, no matter how small and tiny that might be in the eyes of the world. Because what is the point? What are you going to tell someone? Like who survived thousands to one chances of being killed, but they're still alive. And they say, well, anyway, what's the point? What are you going to do? Say, oh, well, you know what? You might get really rich one day and have a fantastic life and buy your own private island and have your own private jet. And? Really? Is that all? Nothing else much. Oh, you might have this amazing sexual experience. You might have this amazing family experience really and and it's all going to come to an end anyway because one day your number comes up and you are going to die because no one gets out of here alive anyway <laughs> that's a Doctor. Yeah. absolutely yeah, you might survive thousands of chances to one that you didn't get scribbled at a certain point in life but you're going to get, you're going to get it in the end because everybody has to die and like it or not that is how it is so, <laughs> Saul then, uh, yeah, he's Paul anyway, he's gone around preaching. And all right, he made a mistake, in my opinion, by maxing out on arguing with the Jews. You crucified Jesus, you rotten a lot, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, which is one of the best thing. But anyway, he didn't uh, make any converts until at the end, when he's gone all around the island of Cyprus. And there's this bloke called Elymas who's trying to make trouble for him. He says, I'm going to get you in trouble with the governor of the island. You're just a troublemaker. And so, Paul is summoned before the governor, what he calls here, the proconsul. And in verse 7, this proconsul, Sergius Paulus, this great guy, he summons Barnabas and Saul and says, what's this that you're preaching? and so they explain it to him but Elymas opposed them it's like this guy is sitting on his throne and there's Saul and ba- Paul and Barnabas in front of him preaching the gospel and there's this sort of Pin- Pinocchio sort of bloke like Elymas saying no no don't listen to them that's wrong that's rubbish what they're saying don't listen to them and then Saul says to him verse 9 you son- ten, you son of the devil you enemy of all righteousness full of all deceit will you not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord Now the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and you won't see the sun for a time. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness and he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, the governor, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So how's that for an example of where man sets out to destroy the gospel and it actually ends up with the gospel spreading? That, as I say, there's Paul and Barnabas summoned by the governor Sergius Paulus there on his throne these two guys in front of him he say well, what are you teaching? I tell him the gospel and there's this bloke Elimas saying no 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 that's all rubbish don't listen to them that's nonsense that's rubbish and then Paul says hey you stop it strikes him blind and the, the governor says wow I want to be a Christian and he was the boss he was the governor of all the cycles so One thing you take away from that is that God does work in unexpected ways. And the ways of the Lord are beyond finding out. And it is what a very wise man said many years ago, the magnificent defeat, Fred Butler, the magnificent defeat, that what appears to be the worst defeat for you, for the gospel, for the Lord Jesus, for the cause of God, turns out to be the greatest victory. And of course that is the whole narrative of the death and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. I mean, how can a man stripped naked, beaten, spat upon, mocked, put on a cross to die, dying in shame and his friends run away from him, he's left alone and he dies. He doesn't come down from the cross, dies. How could that achieve anything? Well, yes, (laughs) it achieved everything. Because after three days, the Lord rose again. So, you know, it's the magnificent defeat. And that, in the end, is how it is in our lives, and how, in the end, we are to understand our own death. That what appears to be defeat, that I am in the hospice, let's say, Dying, the doctors can't do no more. This is terminal cancer. I am now in the hospice. And, well, I know that I don't have much longer. I have to get my will in place and say goodbye to my loved ones. And it seems like the ultimate defeat, the ultimate game over. But it's not. If you're not a believer, yeah, it is. It's game over and you lost big time. But if we are in Jesus... And if we are baptised into Jesus, we are baptised into his death and his resurrection. And our eternity is assured. And that song that we we sing, and I think uh, Jonathan played it, As death gives way to victory. As death gives way to victory. I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know he lives. So death gives way to, not shame and not to eternally just decomposing into nothing. But death gives way to victory. Absolutely. Well, why does Paul do this to this fellow, this uh, sorcerer, this witch doctor bloke? He says, you should be blind, you will not see the sun for a period. And they fell on him a mist in the darkness, and he went about trying to find someone to lead him by the hand. Why does Paul do that? Well, and so... Why does he do that? He does that because that is exactly what happened to him. That's what happened to Saul when he was on the way to Damascus. He was made blind by the Lord Jesus and the very same words are used. He didn't see the sun. There fell on him a mist. And he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. What's the point of that? Well, I think that Paul then was not just getting cranky and saying, oh, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to make you blind for a bit because you try to persuade the governor not to listen to me. No. He does it because he hopes that this guy, this witch guy, this uh, sorcerer, whatever he's called, um, that this guy is going to go through the same pattern that Paul went through. He's hopeful, even for this witch doctor guy He's being a total pain and trying to, you know, speak in the ear of the governor. Don't listen to Paul, this is all rubbish, this Christian gospel stuff, all this God stuff, don't, don't listen to that. He actually wants to save that guy. And he wants the guy to go through his own pattern. And he says, when he's writing to Timothy, that in me first, Jesus Christ set forth a pattern. That Paul was going one way, he was persecuting the Christians etc. Killing them, making them blaspheme, torturing them. And then there there was this one hundred and eighty degree change. And he says I was I am a pattern for all those who should hereafter believe. And that is absolutely how it is. And we think is there you know is there Damascus roads, you know, today, do people really change? and I accept that there's people who may get converted but they don't change Um, or they change and then they change back Mm. that is so but don't let that obscure the fact that there are many people who absolutely radically change 180 degrees and stay transformed or although it may be two steps backwards and three steps forward they are transformed In in the final end picture they are transformed absolutely and that can be true for all of us that can be true for all of us and as I say Paul says that this is our pattern that he was our pattern so verse 13 Paul and his company set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem now what happened was that John actually uh, had an argument uh, with them and he wanted to go back and Paul and Barnabas have an argument and we'll talk about that later they fell out with each other over this guy John who was actually Barnabas' relative so even people like Paul and Barnabas great guys as they were they were still human and they still had arguments and they still sinned and that's something I so love about the, the message you get in the Bible that you have not got these saintly people like you see in stained glass windows in churches, with white faces and perfect, pious eyes. You know, none of them were like that. They're all sinners. We're all sinners. Now, that doesn't mean it's okay to sin, but I'm just saying, that if God is looking for perfection from people, I say this with respect to God, but he, he will be disappointed, because apart from in his son, he sadly is not going to find it in any of us. But, He also knows that, and so he has made this way. That through connection with Jesus, being in him, he will look at us as if we are Jesus, as if we are perfect. And so, when you get baptised, you go into the water, you, you connect with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you are in Jesus. When you take the bread, representing the body of Jesus, and the cup, representing his blood... You likewise connect with Him. This is a sign of connection with Him, that you are in Him, and for all your imperfection, you are still seen as Jesus. So let's just um, let's just thank God for the bread and the juice, Heavenly Father. We thank you with all our hearts for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for His death and resurrection, for His perfection, and that you have called each of us to have a part in Him. And we who take this bread and this juice show to you that we want that part. And we pray that we might abide in him for Jesus' sake. Amen.